Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are, Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. So I'm going to give a, a little introduction to the precepts, and then Kelly is going to talk about the first clear mind precept, vowing not to kill. So I found a little historical context on Norman Fisher's Every Day. I'll start with that. The 16 Bodhisattva precepts, set of vows of ethical conduct, taken many times in a Zen practitioner's life. They derive originally from the Vinaya. The Vinaya rules are stipulations and advice that guide the Buddhist community. Their monastic vows taken on ordination during the Buddha's time. There were 250 precepts for monks and 348 precepts for nuns. Lay people about five. The Bodhisattva precepts used in the Mahayana tradition emphasize conduct to benefit others and are taken both by monastic and lay practitioners. The short set of 16 precepts we use in our tradition were formulated by Dogen Zenji, the founder of Soto Zen in Japan. They form the basis of ceremonies, jukai, receiving the precepts, priest ordination, marriage and funeral ceremony. Many Zen centers chant the precepts once a month on the full moon, which is done in Clearwater Zendo, in a ceremony of reflection, repentance, and renewal. The precepts are inexhaustible mindfulness practices. They are also a lifetime calling. So that, uh, inexhaustible mindfulness practices. So when I first came to Zen practice, and probably for a good while after that, I don't think I paid much attention to precepts at all. And I don't remember it really being emphasized that much. Uh, we, we did start having full moon ceremonies pretty early on, I think maybe 20 years ago or something. Does that sound right, Kate? It was pretty early. Say that again, I'm sorry. Uh, I think we started full moon ceremonies at Clearwater maybe 20 years ago or pretty early on. Doesn't that sound? Early? Yes, and they were always happening when I came. Yeah. And uh, I, I did not participate early on because I, I was not comfortable looking at all those issues and confessing all my shortcomings. I was uh, very self-protective and it felt kind of painful. And it's easy to take it for granted, uh, take something for granted if we tell ourselves that it's kind of obvious. Well, of course I'm not going to kill or steal or lie or so on. So, you know, I don't need to pay attention to those. But the older I get, the more I, I feel like the most important thing I could do is cultivate more kindness. And, and the precepts are really uh, very useful and big part of that. Because everyone here is pretty familiar with precepts. We know they're not handed down from on high. They're not commandments. As Norman said, uh, the precepts are inexhaustible mindfulness practices, which I think is a really good way to say it and a very practical way to think about it. Help us to see ourselves. And uh, it's not like anyone's going to punish us if we don't follow them, but we might not feel so good. I have a, a short excerpt from Dogen's Kyojukaimon, or 
instructions given on the precepts, where Dogen said, the precepts of the Buddhas are maintained carefully by Buddhas. Buddhas give them to Buddhas, ancestors transmit them from ancestors. Receiving the precepts goes beyond the three times, which I mean to take, or which I, I take to mean past, present, and future. Realization continues unceasingly from ancient times to present. Our great teacher, Shakyamuni Buddha, transmitted the precepts to Mahakashapa, and Mahakashapa transmitted them to Ananda. Thus they have been transmitted generation after generation down to me, Dogen, in the 80th generation. Now I, as head priest, will give them to you in order to show my gratitude toward the compassionate benevolence of the Buddhas and make them the eyes of all sentient beings. Indeed, this is the way to maintain the living wisdom of the Buddhas. I pray for the guidance of Buddhas and ancestors to verify it. So that line, this is the way to maintain the wisdom of the Buddhas. I mean, that's what we do. We actualize that in our practice and the practice of precepts. Without that, it's, it's dead. That line, uh, make them the eyes of all sentient beings. I love that. It's like all beings seen through the eyes of the precepts. And we can see how important precepts were to Dogen. So I have a terrible memory, but I don't recall precepts being emphasized that much early on or in the books that I was reading. I don't remember much about precepts, mostly stories of uh, dialogues between a teacher and a monk or a monk and a monk and somebody has a great realization and that sounded really great. And uh, Reb talks a bit about this lack of emphasis in, in his introduction. We're in the late 80s during his term as abbot, the Tibetan teacher Tara Tulku came to teach at San Francisco Zen Center. And he said to Reb at one point, well, I talked to some of your students, and there are certain things about Mahayana Buddhism that they don't seem to know. Taratuko emphasized basic aspects of the Bodhisattva path, such as paying homage, making offerings, practicing confession, and the precepts. Around that time, several students came to Reb and asked, well, why don't we make offerings to Buddhas and Bodhisattvas? And why don't we pay homage to Buddhas and Bodhisattvas? Reb said, well, we do. Every time we chant before a meal, and they'd say, oh, oh, okay. I was thinking of how when something's built into our schedule and maybe not emphasized so much, it's easy for it to become kind of mechanical and not really taken in. It might be there and not really get seen. Especially if we're new to practice or just haven't done sashin in a while, we can get so focused on doing things right getting the choreography right and not making mistakes, that it's easy to miss the spirit of what we're doing. I heard a talk, uh, Chico Sally Tisdale at Dharma Rains and Center gave a talk recently and she made a comment about noticing uh, some people when they're going to make an offering, uh, they're so focused on the form that they'll never make a mistake, but they'll also can't relax enough to take in the spirit of what's happening. It's okay to make a mistake. We get a kind of tunnel vision. 
Ajahn Chah, the Theravadan teacher, once remarked that the Buddha Dharma has three aspects, dana, or giving, sila, precepts, and bhavana, meditation practice. But when Westerners come to practice, he said, they aren't interested in giving or precepts. They just want to do meditation. And I think that's a tendency for a lot of us. You know, a lot of us come to practice because something's not working in our life. We might be in a lot of pain. And it's pretty normal. We, we get focused on wanting to fix this one. It's all about this one. And that's okay. You know, that's our starting place. Later on, we might learn uh, that working with the precepts can help us to loosen that grip of the small self and begin to get a sense of interdependence. Uh, the emphasis on Zazen was one of the things that really drew me to practice. I can do that. Uh, Genjo Koan Dogen says, uh, to study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be actualized by the 10,000 things. I think I wanted to jump right to the forget the self part and try to bypass the whole studying the self thing. It seemed a little too painful at the time. The precepts are a way to study the self, and they can be challenging. Uh, Rev mentions uh, some of the teachings that seem to encourage reliance on Zazen to the apparent, and I underline apparent, exclusion of the precepts. Zen Master Rujing said, we don't need to recite scriptures, offer incense, practice confession, and so on. Only sitting is required. And then Master Ehe Dogen said that in the true Dharma, Zazen is the straight way to correct transmission. Zazen is all the Buddha taught. Zazen includes all the precepts. One of the beauties of Zen, especially as taught by Dogen, is that it emphasizes so strongly the pure, true, and ultimate teaching. But there is a provisional or conventional teaching also. Only if people are thoroughly familiar with the conventional teaching will they be able to understand the ultimate true teaching. I, I, I know I've read and heard places where uh, at certain times in the history of Buddhism it became a very scholarly kind of practice. People might memorize sutras but not do meditation. So I take some of these com comments to be in that context. And, and at the same time, Zazen does include all the precepts. You know, if we really, really drop our personal agendas, we're not so likely to violate precepts. So things on this subject started to change for Rev while he was studying for his transmission ceremony. He had his first glimpse of the deeper significance of Bodhisattva precepts. He read a document called The Blood Vein, or Kachimyaku, where Dogen said, It was revealed and affirmed to teacher Myozen that the precept vein of the Bodhisattva is the single great condition of the Zen gate. And Reb says, Receiving the precepts of the Bodhisattva is the single unique cause and condition of entering Zen. I was surprised, he said. This has not been emphasized during my 16 years of practice. For many years, even though almost every day I chanted the first three bodhisattva precepts, taking refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, I was not fully and consciously engaged in this practice. Now I learned directly from Dogen's mouth, who said, in the beginning, in the middle, and in the end, in your life as you approach death, in death, after death, 
And as you approach life, always through all births and deaths, always take refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. This basic practice so fundamental to all Buddhists is one that many Western students do not fully appreciate. And I wonder if we were really practicing upright sitting in accord with the fundamental intention that Dogen taught. So studying precepts can help us see where we're attaching, where we're pushing away. As Norman says, they're an inexhaustible mindfulness practice. They help us to see our self-protecting habitual patterns and the effect they have on our lives. We need Zazen practice to get to know our patterns. And working with precepts helps see where we might need more attention. We need both, they complete each other. So, next three classes, we're gonna look one by one at all of the precepts. Maybe they'll make you squirm a little, maybe not. So, I think uh, we have time before uh, Kelly gives his presentation if anyone has any comments, something they want to add or question. Steve was maybe a hair ahead of Kate, so. Yeah, well, what do you think that uh, Dogen meant by the Zazen includes the precepts? Um, well, as I think have Zazen mind. If you return to that um, awakened mind without any kind of agenda, Whereas you where where's the tendency to break a piece violate a precept? Okay. I like that you talked about Reb and his experience and also what I became aware of over time, but much later really, was that a lot of Zen practice isn't directly communicated. <laughs> In a sense, a lot of it, and it's a tradition actually that you show up and you kind of watch what's going on, and you may get training to be a doan or a kokio or something at some point. But a lot of it is just watching and sitting, and and it it kind of drives me crazy. <laughs> really sometimes, or it has in the past, especially when I didn't sort of understand that was part of it, is the way you learn to bow is that you bow day after day after day, and you watch people day after day after day, and that kind of thing. So I don't remember the precepts being particularly emphasized either, and I, I'm really glad we're doing this class because I remember at one point when I had begun doing Dokusan that Mary talked to me about the precepts a little bit. And when Steve and I were sewing, which was much later in my practice for me, she recommended a book because I grew up Catholic and had very strict, you know, religious karma weirdness to work through um the risotto book uh was the one she recommended to me because it's a very gentle it's a very gentle way of coming into concept she doesn't look at it as which most people don't but a lot of the writing is frightened of them 
I haven't had a chance to look at the Risotto book yet. I got a copy, and, uh, and I'm looking forward to reading that. And uh, some of what you were uh, talking about earlier, somewhere I just read recently that, you know, there's a lot of Japanese cultural stuff in our Zen practice. And somewhere recently, I feel like I read that the kind of Japanese style of teaching, it's like maybe 20% communicating and 80% just observing. And, you know, sometimes I wonder whether all of that is, is the best way to go for us. <laughs> but at the same time, you don't want to just make changes too quickly. Um, you know, and different schools of Buddhism have very different styles and very different things. They emphasize Tibetan Buddhism, really different. Um, and I think we can benefit and learn from those different traditions. And I think, as Reb indicated, Maybe we need to emphasize precepts more. I think it really, I think precepts and zazen really balance each other and complete each other in a way that I'm just recently kind of seeing after 25 years or something. <laughs> a little slow on the uptake, maybe. And yeah. Steve? My own thoughts on the 80% observation. Uh, versus 20% explanation is that, yeah, as a very verbal person, like it sort of drives me crazy, or at least it did in the beginning. On the other hand, I quibble with Kate, you saying that it's not directly um, indicating or, or use the word direct. And I actually think it's a great practice, especially for Westerners like so much in our head, to just learn by doing, to just learn by watching. Mm -hmm. I think that's more direct in many ways. And so uh, I think that's a great part of the Japanese tradition. I don't know if the mix is exactly right. I mean, every form of Buddhism is different, and even every temple is a little bit different. But, um, but underlying the precept, to me, are compassion and awareness, or compassion and wisdom. And, and awareness is a big part of that mix. And so being aware of what our teachers are doing and what one another is doing is through just using our senses, I feel like super important. And finally, as, as an example of, I remember like early on being really confused at Berkeley Zen Center about why some people, that's where I started practice, why some people would pause in first and lecture, like here at Vallejo. And I was wondering why people, so many people like show up lecture, but not for Zazen. I would have thought if you have to do one or the other, you should show up for Zazen. I mean, it's good to show up for both, but you know, it's uh, the one of the purposes of Zen, I think, is is to get that direct understanding, um, which includes the precepts, and 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 then, and also, it's probably okay to start practicing Zazen first and then have the precepts introduced to you later, because then you have a foundation. They don't seem to come from on high. So those are my little contributions. Yeah, those were a number of really good points, and thank you for that. Now, some traditions would say the foundation would be more like precepts. 
and a discussion Reb had with Tara Chuku, and Tara was asking him, well, what's your practice? What do you guys do? What's your object of meditation? Reb said, we don't have an object. And this conversation kind of went on. You probably read that. And Tara Tuk was like, oh, that's really advanced practice. We do all these other foundational things before we do an objectless meditation. So, I mean, you could look at it either way. But I, you know, I appreciate the points you made up. And learning from observation as a very direct way, I, I actually really like that part of it. And, uh, you know, different ones of us have different tendencies. Some of us show up for the talk because oh, the Zazen kind of scares us. For me, I show up for the Zazen because I don't want to talk. <laughs> I don't want to get into that stuff. You know, so it takes a you you start in one area or another maybe, and hopefully you find a balance. But yeah, but thank you for that. That was really good points. Zach? I can relate to Kate's comment about the Ten Commandments. And I kind of got over that a while ago when I think about how Buddhism is about suffering and the precepts and the Bodhisattva vows. These are ways of helping you, I don't want to use the word avoid suffering, but lessen your suffering. And when I think of it that way, it's more of a, um, you know, a way of living a more beneficial life versus don't do this and don't do that. So maybe that helps somebody else too. Yeah, yeah, thank you, exactly. Yeah, the more we get to know what our habit patterns are and our tendencies and all the unnecessary trouble we cause ourselves, yeah, the less, the less suffering for us. Oh, yes, Jody. Yeah, you know, when I pretty quickly after I got to the Clearwater Zindo, Mary introduced me to, she actually encouraged me to read Mind of Clover. And I think that might be the one of the first books, if not the second behind uh, Zen Mind, Beginner Mind that I read. And I, I actually found it very useful to have that information and also sitting Zazen. Um, because, you know, probably like many people, my mind when I first started really getting into practice, very busy. And so to be able to kind of have a thought in my mind that something that I was reading to help me focus, even though I understand that that's not really the point of Zazen is to be thinking about stuff, but supplant the monkey race going on with a different kind of more gentle monkey race, uh, the stuff I was reading in these books actually helped me sit and be still in a way that I had never sat and um, been still before. Um, and I came into the Zendo after almost 20 years in a 12-step program where um, there was intense study in those 20 years for me around the self and the steps they talk about or that they encourage people to work on in the in that program and i found it very beneficial so for me i think if if i had to choose one or the other i don't know that i would be able to do that very well because i find them both very very useful i, I wouldn't want one without the other and i don't find one more important than the other as well either i find them equally beneficial for me 
I'm glad that we're doing this class. Um, I would it'd be great to do more than just on, be great to talk about the precepts more than just on the full moon ceremony where we're talking about what we're working on, we're trying to commit to. So um, I appreciate that there's people here tonight and people willing to actually present on the topics. Yeah, thank you, Jody. That's, uh, that was really good, good points. And, and I wouldn't choose one over the other because I think they really complement each other. And, and I think we need both. And we all have the busy monkey mind when we sit. I sit down and some days my mind is spinning around and it takes a while to settle down. And some days maybe it doesn't want to settle down. But uh, I forget who it was, it was Uchiyama or somebody said, you can't fail at Zazen and you can't succeed at Zazen either. Or maybe it was Suzuki Roshi, I think. You know? It's just however it is that's your Zazen that day. If there isn't any other burning questions, probably we, we need to leave some time for, uh, for Kelly's presentation. Thank you, Liam. That, that was great. I was actually writing notes as you were talking because I was like, oh, that's great. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to use that later. I love the, the idea of the study of the precepts being an inexhaustible mindfulness practice. That's, that's really good. So, Jody, you'll be happy to know I'm using a lot from Aiken's Mind of Clover. I read uh, Reb's uh, piece on the first clear mind precept and uh and it was interesting and then i read aikens and i and it really spoke to me so a lot of what i'm going to talk about is from that book and if, if you in the class haven't read it i highly recommend it it's really great so i'm i'm speaking about the first clear mind precept sometimes called the first grave precept we don't really know why uh, <laughs> Uh, Mary and Liam and I spoke about it recently, and and all we could figure was that it meant it was real serious. Though Graves says to me something about being dour, and I, I, I'm not sure that's really what uh, is implied here. But uh, the first uh, clear mind precept is uh, I vow not to kill, which uh, seems pretty simple um, at the surface. You know, it's a don't kill anyone but then we have to back up and we have to start saying well wait anyone like any thing living things does that include animals we assume so which is why vast majority of buddhists don't eat meat does, does it include plants maybe even if it doesn't, growing vegetables kills insects. If you turn the soil, you're liable to kill something. In fact, you are going to kill something to grow your vegetables. There's hardly any way to get through your day without killing something. And I know this is, seems kind of grim, but what I'm interested in, in talking about is sort of the complexities and uh, contradictions of this precept. And I like that, that Liam pointed out and Kate commented on uh, that these precepts are not commandments because I think really the way we can look at them is these are signposts. They're ideas to chew on. They're things to, to kind of roll around in our heads and take inspiration and try and actualize them but understand that we can't quite pin them down 
and I, and I think if we could pin them down, they wouldn't necessarily be that useful. Except for, you know, we wouldn't kill people, which we probably weren't going to do anyway. So, you know, plants, animals, insects, viruses. We're killing viruses all the time these days, and that's usually considered a good thing. What about ideas? Can we kill ideas? Can we kill each other's ideas? Is there an idea that all of you are have, or each one of you is having right now that I'm killing because I'm talking over it? If so, I have to apologize for that. Can we take uncomfortable feelings we're having and squash them? Can we kill those feelings that we're having? I can. I, I do it all the time. There's a nervousness about talking to this group of people. I'm trying to squash that right now. Maybe I shouldn't. Maybe I'm violating a precept. So what do we do? So we can look at the more ever more complicated implications of this precept and feel like it's a trap, feel like it's tightening around us, or we can choose to view it as a sort of liberation. If there's no way to absolutely adhere to a pure interpretation of the precept, then maybe we're free to really, really think about it, to think about what in our lives we're killing. And I'll, I'll do this, killing. Um, if you're just listening to this on audio, I did air quotes. So, or, or even better to think about what in our lives we are encouraging to live. So what, I, what I'm trying to encourage here is uh, that we treat this as a thought problem. Uh, it's not, a, by saying that, I don't mean that this is a license to treat the precept as trivial. You shouldn't go out and pick a fight with someone just because uh, you want to experiment with the thought problem. But it should serve, but it can serve as a safe mental space to explore. So I was looking through um, Aiken's book, and he took uh, Vowing Not to Kill and kind of broke it into three sort of thought categories. Um, the first one he described as a sort of Theravadan view, which was more absolute. He said, which was, don't kill. Absolutely, don't kill anything. Don't participate in activities like eating meat that promotes killing or harming things. Uh, the, the Jains took this really far, like they used to, they would actually strain their water to try and save all the microorganisms that were living in it to keep from killing those. Good luck with that. Um, you know, farming vegetables kills insects, like we said, other microorganisms. Um, if uh, I, I wrote a note there's here when I was uh, doing some research on this, and I was like, if I find a black widow spider in my kid's room, my adherence to the first grave precept is going to be severely tested. Um, oh, just the, the other day, a rodent got into our house while we were sleeping. We found evidence of later. Um, the rodent, as far as I know, is still alive. But there were moments when my adherence to the first grade precept were struggling <laughs> because I, I, my wife has a, a 
almost primal fear of mice and rats. And uh, had we seen that critter, I'm not exactly sure what was going to happen. But so, you know, where does this leave us? Now, now we've got this litany of things that some of us may already do that seem to violate this precept. Uh, some of us pay taxes. Most of us pay taxes. Uh, a lot of that goes to paying for war, um, paying for machines that kill people. Um, all these things are uh, anathema to the, the Theravadan view, which is just don't do it. Don't do it in any way. Um, and so the, the point is that the simplicity of this view is really um, appealing, but it's also kind of a trap. Uh, you, you're never going to adhere to it completely. Um, as as uh, I'll quote from Aiken from Mind of Clover, he says, uh, it is not possible to evade the natural order of things. Everything in the universe is in symbiosis with every other living thing. Natural order includes death sometimes. So that leads us to what he describes as the Mahayana view. Um, this is more of a middle road, but it's got some pitfalls too. So the Mahayana view doesn't deny that the order of things involves killing, but urges us not to revel in the spirit of that. So we follow the way of compassion, nurturing all beings, being nurtured by them. But there's a, some leeway that the Mahayana view gives us. It says, look, we get it. The, you're not going to be able to do this perfectly. You're going to move through life and cause suffering and kill things. And uh, it's it's interesting as as I as I'm talking to you right now, and I'm thinking about the number of times I'm saying the word kill, and it's very strange because it doesn't normally come up in conversation all that often. Um, but where this gets sticky is that we have to draw lines. So the Mahayana view says you're going to kill things sometimes. Um, so where do we draw the line? We find ourselves in a position where we say things like eating meat is bad, but killing spiders is probably okay. We have to kind of acknowledge within that view that there's a pretty bold pretension that we're holding when we get to decide the difference between the good kind of death and the bad kind of death. Uh, so for example, the Reverend Diane Wiley Birch of Hollow Bones Rinzai Zen School said, without compassion, war is a criminal activity. Sometimes it is necessary to take life, but we never take life for granted. Can war be a compassionate activity? Is war okay if we do it with a compassionate heart? I find it hard to stomach. I don't buy it. But it's an idea worth chewing on because it's difficult. Because the idea is a struggle, it's worth struggling with. Then we move on to um, Aiken's third version of this, which is the Buddha nature view. 
this would probably be my most troubling version of it. Uh, it's because what the Buddha nature view says is, hey, we're off the hook. Everything's empty. We're not, there's nothing there to kill. Uh, the thing that Aiken says is, from this point of view, Taku and Zenji is right. There is no one killing, no killing, and no one to be killed. And this might be a little extreme. Uh, I think it's actually probably a lot extreme. And, and a lot of the things that uh, Taku and Zenji, who lived in the 16th, early 17th century, said along these lines uh, were disturbing. Taku and Zenji also very famous for having invented a kind of uh, pickled radish. Just we're interested. One of the things that Taku and Zenji says is the uplifted sword has no will of its own. It is all of emptiness. It is like a flash of lightning. The man who is about to be struck down is also of emptiness, as is the one who wields the sword. Do not get your mind stopped with the sword you raise. Forget about what you're doing and strike the enemy. Do not keep your mind on the person before you. They are all of emptiness. But beware of your mind being caught in emptiness. And Aiken says, and I agree with him, the fallacy of Takuan's way of the samurai is similar to the fallacy of the Code of the Crusader. Both distort what should be a universal law, everything is emptiness, into an argument for partisan warfare. The vow of Takuan Zenji to save all beings did not, accompany, did not encompass the one he called the enemy. Now, why, why am I kind of dwelling on this stuff? Um, I'm dwelling on it because it's a contradiction. I'm dwelling on it because this very simple idea uh, of vowing not to kill is far more complicated than we probably normally think about it. Um, and some of that, and again, I'm glad this was brought up earlier, some of that is because we think about it in this very Western commandments sense. But I, I, you know, I shall not kill. Um, but that's not what's really meant here. Don't go kill, <laughs> but start thinking about what it means not to kill. So here we are with three takes. Uh, there's one that's absolutely impossible. Don't kill or cause suffering to anything at all. You can't do it, but it's noble. It's worth it's worth thinking about, it's worth trying for. Uh, the slightly more liberating one, uh, but with potential moral pitfalls is, well, you can't avoid killing some things, but you have to decide which ones. And then there's the pretty scary, don't worry about it, you can kill, can it kill anything because nothing actually exists. So these are the potential pitfalls that can occur in and around your interpretation of the, free precept, the first precept. So what do you do? Um, I want to go back to Aitken again, uh, where he says, doctrines, including Buddhism, are meant to be used. Beware of them taking a life of their own, or then they use us. Let me read that one more time, because I think it's really critical. Doctrines, including Buddhism, are meant to be used. Beware of them taking a life of their own, or then they use us. 
So we could stop right there, right? And the, that's kind of the most important thing maybe I can say about this. We must live here in the real world. We don't have a choice in the matter and would be foolish not to acknowledge that. So in some ways, perhaps the precepts can be viewed as ethical checks and balances and to keep from embracing the more extreme ends of our own philosophy. Right, so I spend time describing all the pitfalls that you can run into with this precept. And then I say, maybe the way out of it is using the precept, which sounds like crap, right? But let's go back to Aiken. Without fall, here's what Aiken says, without falling into a kind of pernicious equality in which all views are equally valid, you can play with views and see what happens. Even deeply held convictions can melt in the dynamics of give and take, where male and female, adult and child, friend and friend, hold dialogue in a spirit of trust. Easier said than done, to be sure, but the path of lazy retreat inevitably leads to suffering. So I, I think what Aitken is saying here is use these ideas, challenge yourselves with these ideas, um, have a dialogue around this idea, and it can have an effect on the way that you moderate your choices in life. You, you still have to be the one to chew on the precept, and you still have to be the one to take responsibility for your actions around it. You are responsible for what you do with your understanding. You have to do the work of sitting with your questions and your confusion and your discomfort, but then you also need to spend time working with the uh, treasures of the Dharma and the Sangha with your teachers and your peer. You must uh, uh, take in their input and, and take it seriously and treat it with kindness. Um, on Saturday, Liam and I are going to be talking about taking refuge in the three treasures. And I'll be discussing Sangha as part of that. If you listen to that, Maybe keep this idea in mind. You chew on these ideas, and then you need sangha to temper them. There's a, an old saying. I have a friend that I work with who's an ex-Marine, um, and he always says to me, he says, uh, you can cede authority, but not responsibility. And it's worth bearing in mind. You're still responsible for your actions, but you can hand your ideas to other people in your sangha and let them play with them, let them manipulate them before they give them back to you. In fact, I would argue that to truly maintain a balance, you must let other people see your ideas. Open dialogue allows you to explore these ideas safely, but protecting the ideas internally is just another form of killing. What Aitken says again is, if I am anxious, to protect myself, then I will kill your views. So let me, uh, the last thing I wanted to say here is one more quote by Aiken, which I hope, you know, after I've kind of stirred up all these contradictions and wound a net around uh, this precept, I, I like this quote to kind of help understand that we're working with this idea and this this quote like helps me breathe a little on the tail end of it he says 
I do not hold to the perfectionistic position that before one can work for the protection of animals, forests, and small family farms, or for world peace, one must be completely realized, compassionate, and peaceful. There is no end to the process of perfection, and so the perfectionists cannot even begin bodhisattva work. And I'll read that one more time. I do not hold to the perfectionistic position that before one can work for the protection of animals, forests, and small family farms, or for world peace, one must be completely realized, compassionate, and peaceful. There is no end to the process of perfection. And so the perfectionists cannot even begin bodhisattva work. And with that, I hope I haven't said the word uh, kill too much and dissuaded people, but if anyone has any questions, I'd, I'd love to hear what, what everyone thinks. Yes, Liam. First, I, I really like the way you presented the complexity. I mean, it's really an impossible call. Yeah, thank you. Really, really conveyed that nicely. Um, but uh, this Taco in with a T, not to be confused with Taco in. With Taco in, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's a saying in Zen about someone stuck in emptiness. And he's like a classic stuck in emptiness. Yeah. And emptiness, it doesn't mean that nothing exists or that nothing matters. It means that everything is in constant flux, constant change. Nothing is, in, nothing is permanent. It right. doesn't mean it doesn't matter. So... <laughs> I take issue with his point of view, I guess you'd say. And I think a lot of people do, yeah. <laughs> yeah thank you. I, I, I uh, agree with you. And, and I think it's, you know, there's, there's sort of those two extreme views. There's that kind of Theravadan view, which is you absolutely cannot kill anything, which is far too extreme to live with. And there's that that um taco view which is like well everything's empty so you're you're good with whatever you do but both of them are too extreme to exist in the real world and and we have to live in the real world it, it might be cool not to sometimes but <laughs> we don't get that option anybody else yeah zach So I used to kill spiders <laughs> and I don't anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because of this. So maybe it's just having it to think about when something comes up and um, you're conscious, I guess. You're conscious of it. And um, you can make a choice, but um, in my case, I decided not to kill spiders anymore. <laughs> and maybe there's things all during the day that after your lecture, I'll think about other things that way. And maybe that's called practice. I don't know. It is learning and and uh, doing things 
a little differently. Yeah. So great, great little talk. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I, I you know, I, I, I think, I think you really kind of hit the nail on the head because um, it is, it is, it is not about like we say these precepts over and over. We do the full moon ceremony and we say them and, and um, we read about them and stuff, but it is it is about embodying them. Um, but it's not clear, you know, it's not obvious, like, oh, if I if I step with this foot first and then do two steps to the right, I'm I may be, you know, I'm not I'm suddenly doing the precept right. It's like, no, it's this constant. I, you know, I, I struggle with like thinking and then embodying and like what, where, where does that separate? But there's thinking involved. And um, I think as long as we kind of keep rolling this stuff around and the more we can internalize it, the more we, we sort of embody the precept without having to entirely define it. So thank you. Yeah, Kate. Thank you, Kelly. I, I too really like the way that you really dug in and I like the idea of hadn't really thought about it as as just a way of chewing on it <laughs> in a way of a way of grappling with your own relationship to how much you kill because <laughs> yeah. we do. <laughs> That's really what it is when, when you think about it. And I, I always think, the other thing is, I wanna say that the full moon ceremony really has meant a lot to me over the years. And whether I was aware of it or not, um, I think that really, there's so much about Zen that is embodied practice. It's about getting it in your body and doing those vows every week and and just saying those words out loud once a month is a way of embodying it yeah and i think that that lends itself to uh working my mindfulness muscles a little so so they're more available to me on it as I as I get off my cushion and and get into my day so I really appreciate your characterizing it that way and one night when I was driving to Vallejo on 780 it was a beautiful I was going to the Bodhisattva ceremony and I'm driving and I worked all day and I was tired and I was probably not going the speed limit not not going a lot over the speed limit, but I was probably going 70 or something. And in the blink of an eye, I saw this little mouse come in. And I knew, I mean, it was just so quick. I knew I couldn't slow down. I mean, I tried to slow down and I felt it under my wheel. And oh my God, it was, and, and I thought, I'm going to the full moon ceremony. <laughs> I've already messed up rule one. <laughs> I never thought I confessed to killing, you know, and uh, it, it was it, it was so intense, and it really brought home how much 
I don't always have a choice about these things. Um, so I don't know. I just had to tell that story because it really, it really, it, it, it was really something to sit with that night. Yeah. So I also just wanted to do a, just a little housekeeping about time and, and the class is mm -hmm. Wednesday classes have always been a little fluid. So what is not changing is that every Wednesday from 540 to 610, there's Zazen. And then the class generally, depending on many factors, usually starts by 615. And depending on the number of people and how much discussion there is, the end is also a little fluid. So it's 7.15, 7.30, they've gone as long as seven. It depends on who's facilitating. So I, I would generally recommend people if they're wanting to be here for the whole thing, just plan if, if you can't make it for zazen 6 15 to 7 30 and if we end earlier we end earlier if we you know i just wanted to clarify that for people yeah thank thank you for that it's it's funny because i i i got so used to over the years um aa meetings and <laughs> they would start on the minute and end on the minute and i'm always confused when meetings don't happen that way <laughs> Yeah. So I, I breathe and let it go. <laughs> yeah, Jody. Yeah, Kelly, thank you so much. I'm glad that you um, talked about uh, the stuff out of Mind of Clover. I actually love that book. Um, yeah, me too. It's all marked up in different colors because I've read it through three times and seen different things each time, which is fascinating. Yeah. Um, but I was thinking about this idea, like, to me, it seems that when I'm threatened or think I'm going to lose something I need or I'm not going to get something that I, I really feel like I'm supposed to have or, or if I have a feeling of, like, entitlement to something that seems to be that is, makes it a little more easy to justify killing, whether it's killing someone's idea, like, thinking, if, I, if, I, if I'm so strongly holding on to my own idea, and you share yours and I have this feeling of threat that your idea is going to be better minded. Like, yeah, it seems like I would be more apt to try to like shut your idea down or, or even shutting other people's emotion down. If I'm, if I'm afraid of someone's expression of like grief or sadness or something, like if, if that's something that startled me or frightens me, like I would be more apt to, and I'm not aware of that feeling of threatened or feeling of entitlement or feeling of whatever it's gonna it's gonna allow for that justifying whatever action I take and I for me that's where I have to be really mindful and thoughtful um you know I'm quick to say to my wife oh my god why are you so scared of that little tiny spider like you know she she's she's literally uh an acrophobe I mean she really mm -hmm. takes it over the top and I've killed spiders for her because she's like, I need you to kill it. Like she, there's nothing I can do to calm her mind. She needs it to be dead, especially if it's in the yeah. house. And I just do it. 
you know, and I'm kind of worked up about it because I don't want to kill the spider, but I don't want her to bring in the raid and shoot it all over the house for one little teeny tiny spider. So, <laughs> which will kill a whole bunch of other things. Yeah. I do go through it, but then you know, but then I can justify like shutting something down that I feel threatened by if I'm not aware of it. You know what I mean? So I think I think it's a really healthy uh, precept to study in that way. Is like. What, when do I feel threatened and what do I do when I feel threatened or when I think I'm entitled to something like I'm a fisherman, I have grown up, I grew up on a, on farming. I grew up with a father who, who, who hunted. Mm-hmm. I love to fish since I've started going to the Zendo now, seven years or so I do catch and release, but I still fish. I don't use worms anymore. And sometimes I do, uh, but I try to switch to like plastics and other things. But even in that, like there's a killing that's occurring because these things are plastic and they that's the environment. But I'm not ready to give that sport up. I love it. It brings me a lot of joy. And that's what it is. I don't feel bad or guilty about it. But I am not reveling in it. But I do think about like, how can I make this activity a little more gentle on xyz and still enjoy it and uh, not feel guilt-ridden by it so um anyway i appreciate the, the concept and I, it's not just about killing things but also ideas emotions um he even talks about when you get off work coming home like instead of starting with, with how was your day like start out with something positive about like you know what happened in the day and um i like that idea too like i never thought about that in, in terms of killing so um anyway those are my thoughts about it. i really appreciate talk yeah thank you those those are really good thoughts and and i I like i I really like um how how you uh emphasize the complexity of the whole thing because that's that's really what we're kind of working with i know when when i was growing up um you know in my household it was a really bad idea to have strong emotions to show strong emotions you have them you know show um and and you know it did not go over well if, if I had really strong emotions. So I find myself um, killing those all the time. Like strong emotion wells up, I just crush it. Um, so so it is. It's such a broad practice just with this one precept. It's like no, don't don't kill that emotion. Don't kill that thought. You were talking about killing other people's thoughts and 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 what they're saying and and my immediate take on that was you know my my reaction is to kill my own so so that i won't when i say kill my own so that i won't stop theirs that sounds way more generous than it actually is it's like i'm just so used to squashing my own ideas that i i will i will kill my own but it's it's kind of just as bad um, yeah, it's a it's a constant practice. Anyone else? Oh yeah, Lisa. Yeah, I guess I I I really appreciate how in our well, I guess in our tradition, I don't know if it's an all Zen groups, but this, the full moon practice, the way Mary does it of having that moment of check-in yeah, where we actually, and it's almost like we're at, sometimes I'm like, oh my God, I don't know what precept I'm working on, you know, I quickly <laughs> figure it out. And, but it's interesting because it actually, it kind of forces you to be chewing on it. Mm-hmm. Like it kind of asks you 
to always be chewing on this you know and i tend to have certain like my certain favorite precepts oh there goes that one again you know <laughs> i don't usually work on the the one about killing but um mm -hmm. but yeah it's kind of like we're we're being we're being kind of encouraged to be chewing on this all the time yeah no, I, I, I totally agree. And it's funny, like I have that moment too, when we get to the check-in, which I often forget is coming. And we get there and it's like, oh, we're about to do the check-in. I'm like, oh no, um, what are the, and, but I do find that it, within about 45 seconds, I, the litany of things starts rolling through my head. It's like, oh yeah, gosh, I violated that one. Oh, I haven't been good about that one either. It, it becomes pretty readily apparent as I go down the list. Thank you. Anyone else? Yeah, Steve. I just wanted to say that I feel you. It's a, that this thing of growing up where you can't be show strong emotions and trying to crush them. In myself, I find they don't die. They, uh, yeah, it's, it's probably a really wise thing to know. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's like such a habit that I don't even know why I tried to do it. Even though I've learned that they don't die, still try to kill those feelings that I arbitrarily don't like. I know myself well enough to know that if I get angry, I don't have the kind of temper where I'm about to like hurt somebody. Mm -hmm. Like I think, I think feeling itself is going to be hurtful, but I, I think I never give it a chance to, you know, to live. I want it to die before it can live. So I, I appreciate you bringing that up. And, um, and I, I'm tempted to try to put it into the three baskets of the Theravada and the, Bodhisattva version and the Buddha version, but I'm actually, I'm not killing that thought, but I'm sort of putting that thought to the side so that I can sort of be with this. What's it like not to try to kill? Yeah. You know, the feelings I don't like. Yeah, it's, it's, it, I, I love how you put that because it's, it's great because then just that warning of, and don't take anything I just said as a framework to kill any other things that you're, yeah. you're thinking about. <laughs> Thank you. Anybody else? All right. Well, thank you, everybody. Thank you, Liam. Thank you, uh, everybody, for coming. And uh, we will see many of you on Saturday. Beings are numberless, I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to rend them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to become it. Beings are numberless, I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Karma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. 
Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. 